I like to put in perspective what has been said those few days. I find when one says something or affirms something, often some part of the contrary is also true. So it is important to put what has been said in a proper perspective that may help to understand in a vaster way and put their things in their proper context. I studied Tibetan Buddhism mainly with two teachers and they were very different. The first one, Gishabdan, was a Gelupa monk, very bright position, and his uh, life was very simple. He started when he was a young boy in Eastern Tibet. He wanted to go to the monastery, and he requested his father many times to be sent to the monastery in Lhasa. But his father thought that was just some kind of thought that he had, but his motivation was not very strong, so he postponed sending him to the monastery in central Tibet, always seeing later, later. So he was <coughs> sent to the field in eastern Tibet to take care of horses. His family were <coughs> owning horses and he did take care of them. He was very skillful in riding horses and skillful at archery. But when he was 19, he thought that his father would never send him to the monastery, that he better take it upon himself. And when he heard that Sam Parsi was leaving for Lhasa the next morning, so the journey was very long, maybe taking two months, so it was much better to travel in a group rather than alone. It was very dangerous to travel alone. The next morning, very early, he went out and he tied all the legs of the horse so they would not go far away and then took one horse and joined the party to go to Lhasa and the father in the morning realized what his son had done so he understood that his motivation was quite strong <coughs> so with some of his brother he went to join him where they were camping at some distance and he brought some food and said, because if your determination is very strong, then better you go with my blessing rather than going against my will. And Gesha then went to Sarah. While he started to study, he was quite old to enter the monastery. Usually the monks start at six or seven, and he was 19, so he had to start to write first, then to write and read. But quickly he improved a lot, and he was a very skillful student. Yet in the monastery, people were not getting food. The food was brought by the family from outside the monastery. Some monks who had difficulty to feed themselves, then they would go to houses to make rituals, chant prayers, so they would get food. Then when they were doing that, of course, all their time for their own practice and studies would go away. So Geshe never wanted to follow this line. And sometimes he had no food for many days. And he said that he would boil some leather 
and drink the water so you will feel disgust and not uh, feeling like eating anything. And his robe were in such a bad shape that he would take some uh, wire just to fix them together because he has no money to buy some more clothes. And they studied where they intent in the big monastery of Alasa, like in Sarah. They would debate, often all the night. They would study during the day and spend all the night debating. And you may imagine that the night in Tibet may be very cold. So they were putting themselves under the sand. They would gather the sand around themselves, not to feel too cold, and then rest like that for all the night. Some monks would ask questions and they would answer in this very precise way that the monks are using. Just using a logical way of discussion. You can't say, well, I think, maybe, I believe. Then one has really to follow a very logical way. So he studied for a few years like that, getting very little food. And once again in Lhasa area, there was a big debate where all the, the abbot and the best scholar from the three monasteries would gather and there would be a kind of a competition. That was the Wimbledon of uh, Lhasa. And that was very important for the monks because for them, it was something fascinating to look at a debate and to be able to follow. It's really like a tennis game because one is sending an argument, the other is sending another argument, and the monks do follow that with much uh, um, pleasure. And often the skillful debater, he can make fun of the other one because when something is not coherent in logic, then you would immediately see the funny aspect of it and take the absurd consequence of the affirmation of the other. So it may be quite a nice game of debating. Geshe then joined this game of debating, which was happening at some distance near Lhasa. It was a holy spot because it had some legend, legendary meaning. It is said that maybe the most well-known logician in India was Naga, living by the 6th century, when he was writing um, his treaty, logical treatise on a stone. He said one Hindu Brahmin every day would come and erase everything which had been written during the day. So the Naga one evening came and he was upset. He said, it's not possible that I write every day and somebody's coming and erasing. So he wrote a note. He said, if you don't agree, you stay and we'll debate. So next morning there was this uh, Brahmin holding Hindu system. Then they debated and the Hindu logician was defeated, but he did not accept the defeat, so he took some sand and threw the face of Dinaga, and then he escaped. So Dinaga thought, then it is that I'm not going to write this logical treatise, because if it just brings so much confusion in other and aversion and anger, then I better just sit and meditate rather than writing a logical treatise. So he took the stone and threw it up in the sky, saying that, well, when that stone falls down, that's over for me, I will not write any more logical treatise. But Manjushri, who saw that, the Bodhisattva wisdom, then he knew that Dinganga, being such a powerful logician, that will be a great loss if he did not write his treatise. So he held the stone. The stone never fell back, and he asked Dinganga to complete his treatise, that would be very useful. And it's something that all the Buddhists called. 
in Mayana. Please do follow. But he said that when he left the stone and this stone fell in Tibet, at the place where near Sarah there will hold the big debate among the three monasteries of Sarah and Drakon. So they were debating all the night and not really finding any weakness in the point of view of the other. Imagine the Geshe's and Lamas in those big monasteries, they debate for about 30 years. So they are used to all ways of thinking, all ways of doubting and questioning. And during the night, Geshe had wanted a few time to ask questions, but he was still a young monk, so the elders said, please wait uh, later. Then by the morning, the elder monk, they had no more argument, so they let Geshe them go, and actually he defeated the abbot of Drepung Monastery. Then after that, he got some reputation, he was well known, which helped him because he got some students, and the students would bring food to him, tea and butter and champa, so he could go on with his studies and make less problems to feed himself that he had before. Then after convening his studies in, in uh, Tibet, he left in 59 when the Chinese came and went to India, where he quite soon retired in the foothill of uh, Dharamsala. To go into a retreat, he decided that his time of study had been over, that now he wanted to practice more intensively the meditation. And he did for a few years a retreat till many Westerners came and went to see the Dalai Lama and asked him for teaching. So he requested Geshe Rabdan to take care of those students. So the retreat of Geshe Rabdan was over and suddenly he had all those Westerners coming at his door to ask questions about meditation and with his teaching. But he kept living in a very small house on the foothill and I remember sometimes when we had teaching it was raining so heavily inside that we had to stop at the middle because all the rain was coming inside. So his house was very simple and very poor house. It was always very inspiring to, to see in his house and practicing from morning till evening, but for when he was distracted by westerners. So he had actually a very strong learning and also a good practice of meditation, although his first training was really in learning. The text like the Bodhisattva Avatara, which I have spoken about a few days ago, and of course philosophy and the way the mind works in its logical and perception. Later on, he even could not stay in Dharamsala because Westerner Kena came again and pushed him away from Dharamsala to bring him to Switzerland, so he had even less peace. That one line where the importance is really much on the studying and reflection, reflection on text and the practice of like Tunglen, love and kindness and practice like that and a logical reflection on the nature of things, on the self and other, see if they do exist really or not, by logical reasoning. A very gradual path very well organized. The second teacher with whom I studied was Vilgokin Terimpochi, very different person. He was the king, the son of a minister from the king of Dege, 
Such a me from a very wealthy family, recognized as a Rinpoche when he was a child, and received teaching when he was very young. Very soon he wanted to go and to put that in practice. So he went for 12 years in retreat and practiced the teaching he had received. And actually he did not want to go out of his retreat. He thought that he would end up his life being just meditating. It was fine for him. But his teacher did not agree. And after those 12 years, he sent him out. He said, now it is time for you to teach. So the first thing he went, he, when he went outside, he went to a big gathering of yogis and he said there were seven hundred of yogis were giving teaching and teaching. So he started immediately with a large amount of students and all his life he had very vast amount uh, of students. Whenever one would try to see him, it was always a long queue of people waiting just to see him for five minutes to get some advice. And if he was giving sometimes some lecture for a gathering of students. His main line was practicing meditation. But he also did study a lot. He also loved to read texts and wrote commentaries. Yet his main approach was a practice of meditation, mainly in the Dzogchen tradition, which is a non-causal approach where you don't gather small causes for later on to get some results. This more abrupt path just to abide or rest in the true nature of the mind. He was also very dedicated to the welfare of all beings. He would get up at four in the morning, do his meditation and then start to teach maybe by six till at seven or eight in the evening where he will go in his room and then he will have private students coming maybe to eleven. I remember receiving teaching from him, of course, with many people in South of India. He would start at 7, till 7 in the evening with a short break at lunch. And he will not leave his place where he was sitting there. They will bring the food for him. So he will just always sit on his huge throne, because he was very strong, and just eat his food. And while he was eating, there were always people asking questions. They would come one here and one here. And he had never any time for himself, never any private time. That's something he did not know. He even would not go to the bathroom, they would bring him a bottle, so under his rod, they will pee and do his bottle and he would go. <laughs> not one minute, he would not lose one minute. Sometimes the young Rinpoche, they were worrying about his health and they would say, well, maybe he should take some break. So he would agree, then they would put him in a car and drive around the monastery and then he said, that's enough, and then he would go back. <laughs> so it was never too much break and he was just like in South Africa when he was sitting at 7 in the evening, he would look at us and say, oh, you are tired, so we'll stop. Then he would go back to his room and that's where people would get private teaching. So he come with your text and ask for this type of teaching or, you know, which color is the mind, you would go and ask him or he would ask you and then maybe till 9 or, or 10. And there was a sense that there was never need for him to protect anything, to protect any time or anything that he would push away people. And of course, the inspiring figure. So those two approaches, one much more in a gradual way, on 
much time spent in reading, reflection and studying, also a time for meditation, and the other approach much more on meditation, ritual, but also sometimes for studying. But the balance is very different. The two traditions look at each other when it is not done with a pure mind, with seeing the excess in the other rather than the quality. So sometimes the meditators on the non-causal path, they look at the logician and they say, you are just bringing more concepts, you are just studying to get more and more complex thoughts about what is a mind, but you never see it actually. And the logician said to those meditators, you just try to have an empty mind, you just stay like a cow and you believe that with that you are reaching enlightenment. So sometimes they don't really agree. <laughs> of course, that is to take the extreme. As we saw that both teachers, they had the two aspects within their own practice. There is a, a small story, a friend of mine uh, told me to illustrate those two aspects. said that one monk is walking along a river up and down, just in front of the river. And then across the river, there is another monk, and there is a, a huge, uh, on that a wall, you know, like a small hill, very steep, and this monk is trying to jump at the top from the bottom. You know, it's very, very high, so he does not succeed, but he always tries to jump at the top and fall back. So the first one is like the logician. He doesn't know when to, to cross the river, so he's just thinking, if he crossed now or later, here or there, and he never crossed the river. While the other one is following the abrupt path and he tries to jump, but it's so high that anyway, it just does not end anywhere. Well, we see that those two cases in their extreme, they end up not doing much or not succeeding very much when it is not made in a balanced way. I have told the other day the story of the conversion of Ashwagosha, you remember this Hindu teacher who went to see this monk in Nalanda and asked questions and this monk never answered. Then he went away and came back and said uh, that there was no mistake in him. So that's one story about the conversion of Ashwagosha. And this way of telling the story of his conversion, of course, is from the point of view of the people who follow the non-causal path because the same account is told in another way by the logician. And I will give you the same story from the logician point of view. You will see it quite, quite different. So Ashma Gosha, still a logician in the Hindu tradition, goes around all the northern part of India defeating all the people that he meet. He's very skillful in debate. And uh, that is well known. We still have texts in Sanskrit from him which are very bright. So all the people, the, the scholars, they are afraid of him because they are afraid that they need to convert to his point of view and all their disciples will have to convert to his point of view. So wherever he goes, he is very scared. Now, he's approaching the monastery of Nalanda. They are, they are very afraid because nobody there can defeat him. They know that they don't have a, such a scholar at this time to be able to uh, answer and to, to stand in front of him. So the abbot is very worried. He said that during the night he sees in his dream a crow and the crow is a protector 
and then we understand that actually he has to send a message from this crow, from this bird, to go and to call for Magajuna, top of the philosopher who is living in South of India. So if he, of course, if Magajuna comes to answer the debate, then that will be win for the Buddhist because he's such a great figure. So he writes the note, and this bird actually comes in the morning and asking Nagarjuna to come and to protect and defend the Buddhist when this bird <coughs> goes away and reaches the place in South of India where Nagarjuna is staying. And this time Nagarjuna is with his disciple, with Ayadeva. And Ayadeva is second next best logician, so it's a very good team there. Eh? Ayadeva is said to have been born not from a, a human mother, but from a lotus. And there was a prophecy saying that nobody born from a mother, uh, human birth, can defeat Ashwagosha. So when Nagarjuna received that, first he said, oh, I should go immediately. But his disciple, Nagarjuna, said, no, you are old, Master, you are very old, I better go, it would be much better you stay here. So then Nagarjuna accepts, but first they must debate. So Nagarjuna takes the Hindu point of view and Ayadeva takes the Buddhist point of view. The debate, Ayadeva wins. Then the change point of view, Ayadeva wins. So it's good omen. Then Nagarjuna sends Ayadeva away and says, don't be attached to your side. So Ayadeva goes all the way to reach Nalamba University and on the way he meets a very old woman who is blind and asks him for one eye. So he's taking one eye and give to this old woman. Then when he reached the University of Nalanda, he sees around there is Ashwagosha with all his disciples and he sees how they are behaving. He is hiding himself as a water carrier, not to be noticed when he would go in the monastery. And he has seen what they were doing, so he goes in the monastery and next morning he is seeing a pot full of uh, excrement, very, very um, filthy pot certainly of uh, copper or something like that, and he cleaned the outside with sand and ashes and very beautiful, yet all the uh, filthy water and the excrement are inside. So when the disciple of Ashwagosha, they see that, they come to him and say, you are, you are slightly silly because how do you expect to clean this pot if you just wash the outside and you don't purify the inside? Well, you look at them and say, well, you believe that by going into the Ganges, you will purify your mind, so I'm just doing the same as you are. So they are very upset. They go to Atmagosha and they say, you know, there is this man there and he's making fun of us. <laughs> well, next morning he's going out and he has uh, taken a, a pot of water and he's just watering some dead plants, completely dry and burned. And again they come to him and say, well, you are really silly because those plants will never grow again. Don't you see that they are dead and dry for a long time? Well, he say, well, you also are doing some kill for your ancestor who has died since a long time. So why should I not try to do something for those plants? <laughs> well, again, they are very upset and they go to Ashwagosha explaining that this man is really making fun of them. So the day of the debate is set. And that was something very important. And we find it all over Indian history because the king of the kingdom will come with his minister because he will sponsor the winner. He choose the best religion to sponsor. So the one who will win will get the sponsorship from the king and the minister 
and all the intelligentsia, very good scholar would be around. So this debate is organized. Now when they come to meet, Ayadeva has taken with him a cat, he has taken and with him has brought a sadhu completely naked and he's burning a lot of incense. So he comes in this way for, to debate. Then when they meet, Ashvagosha, the Hindu logician, he had a parrot on his shoulder. Actually that was Shiva who was whispering the answer to him. So the cat, <laughs> the cat jumped into the parrot and, and killed it. And uh, uh, then the Hindu teacher complained, he said, you know, why, why, I thought Buddhists were not killing animals? And I uh, said, it is the nature of the cat to eat uh, birds, so what can I do? <laughs> now, Parvati was also, the wife of Shiva, was also helping the Hindu logician by writing answers in the sky. So when she sees this naked sadhu, she's quite ashamed and he's burning a lot of incense, so she cannot write anymore in the sky. So now they can debate together, there is no more medical help for the Hindu teacher there, Ashwagosha. Then first thing that Ashwagosha does, he looks at Ayadeva, the Buddhist teacher, and said, How are you, Aditya man who has only one eye? Are you there with one eye to uh, uh, come and debate with me? And Ayadeva said, well, what with my eye I have seen? Indra with his thousand eyes he has not seen. Just to set up the tone of the, of the debate. So there, <laughs> then they start to debate. And Ayadeva win actually. So Ashwagosha is going far away. And he said at one point, Ayadeva said, don't go farther. Otherwise, you, you will go into uh, annihilation if you go further than that. They go to the end of the space. And uh, Ayadeva, Ashvagosha doesn't believe him. So he said, well, just put your hair and you will see. So he put his hair a bit farther and they disappear. So you know that he cannot go farther. He come back. So he has to convert to the Buddhist point of view, but he's not so happy about that. So it is said that really he stays in the monastery but not uh, wanting to do anything there. And then one uh, day some leaves are falling, some books leaves are falling, and he read what is written on it and it is said that actually Ashwagosha will be one of the greatest Buddhist scholars. So he said, well, is that the truth? I'm going to cut my tongue and if it is true that it will go again. So he's cutting his tongue. Well, he's going again. And he has written a few texts, and certainly the most beautiful biography of the Buddha, which is very nice, uh, nicely written, um, because he was a very skillful writer. So that's the logician way of explaining the conversion of Ashwagosha into a Buddhism. So the other was a little bit more abrupt and a little bit shorter. <laughs> So that was just to give a, a slight perspective about joining the two aspects of a, a more gradual approach, like uh, the meditation we are doing on love and kindness, on exchanging self uh, with others, and all those practices, and something slightly more abrupt, like the meditation on the nature of the mind, that those two traditions uh, need to be practiced together. I will come back on that. Now about the 
abruptly, which we have been speaking about quite a few times during this week, I like also to give an another perspective on that, because we may believe that is something very specific to Buddhist tradition, or even to fight in Buddhist tradition, that actually it's something very exotic and foreign. Well, I find it is not so much so if we look in other mystical traditions. So now we bring the kind of same or similar attitude which we may find in the Christian mystical tradition and see that actually they are very similar even in the way of expression. Sometimes it is strange that they would use the same type of word although the context is quite different. So I, I started to read one, I think, of the most fantastic Christian mystics, which is Master Eckhart <coughs> from the 14th century. And first I had a few difficulties because, of course, he used the term God so many times in each page. And I had still the notion from my childhood and school that God has kind of a very powerful figure uh, giving punishment or reward and all this kind of very naive way of relating to the meaning of the word. Yet, reading Master Eckhart, I saw that finally he was much closer to emptiness than he would be to some figure giving reward or punishment. That the way Master Eckhart speaks or does not speak about him then would really be like the ultimate nature, Buddha nature, or something like that. It is not to impose my interpretation on God, as Master Eckhart said. It's just said that I find it it's much closer to what he expressed than a very powerful figure. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.